This is the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast with Clinton Sanko, Baker Donaldson's e-discovery officer. In season one of Sitting with the C-Suite, Clinton and guests will explore the e-discovery industry's past, present, and future, largely through the eyes of the executives responsible for the technology and services underlying virtually every e-discovery project. Hello, I'm Clinton Sanko, and welcome to the Lean Discovery Applied Series, Sitting with the C-Suite, where we are committed to unraveling e-discovery one interview at a time. Today, we are joined by Alma Assay, an evangelist of Latera and formerly the founder and CEO of Allegory, a case management software company that she built from the ground up based on her experience managing litigation in big law. Join me in welcoming Alma to the show. Thanks, Clinton. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Alma, start out by telling us just a little bit about Latera, the company and the services it provides. Lutera is an enormous legal technology company, and it's funny because a little over a year ago, I had never heard of them. And a lot of that has changed over the last year in terms of their activity in the broader market, but it's somewhere in the 90 percentile of big law firms use Lutera products. Um, and so it, it's quite a significant presence in the legal community. Um, and they really try to create products that help attorneys focus on what matters. And currently they're focused on workflows and workspaces. So workflows in terms of their traditional products often integrated with Microsoft Office products that enable attorneys to stick with the workflow that they're working in and have tools that help them along the way. And then they've been transitioning into workspaces as well. So last year they acquired Workshare and Doxly um, to get into the transaction management workspace area. And as you know, and I think we'll get into later recently, they acquired Allegory, um, which was a natural segue into the litigation workspace. Unpack a little bit for us what Allegory does as a tool and as a service. Allegory was the tool that I created out of my time at Gibson Dunn as a litigator. Um, And primarily it does two things. It connects all the facts, evidence, and people that are important to winning the case. So putting all those pieces in one place and connecting them so that if I pull up a piece of evidence, I can see all the facts and people related to it. If I pull up a fact, I can see all the evidence and people related to it. Just being able to see all those connections. And then it also automates everyday litigation tasks. So creating binders, for example, um, being able to do that, you know, 10 to a hundred times faster um, because you can create a binder with the click of a button instead of the horrible, arduous processes that paralegals go through now to create binders. And as we all know, binders are not a once a case activity. (laughs) They are often, you know, being made daily. Alma, as I was preparing for today, and of course, I've known you for a number of years, but man, there's a lot of media out there on the Alma Assay story. And you mentioned a few of them, but it's taken it from the top. You, You graduate NYU Law in 2005. You work as a litigation associate at Gibson Dunn for seven years and were on the partner track from 2005 to 2012. You leave Big Law to found Allegory, which you you were uh, the startup entrepreneur, founder, CEO from 2012 to 2017. And I, I remember back at that time period, I don't feel like I could open up legal tech news without seeing an Alma Assay award being issued of some sort. You know, by way of example, in 2016, the LTRC, Women in Legal Tech, and the Fast Case 50. Uh, you sell Allegory to Integrion in 2017 and then serve as the chief innovation officer at Integrion uh, until 2019. And now you're at Latera, which then repurchases Allegory, which I can't wait to get into a few questions about that just to set the stage. So that's a jam-packed 15 years in law. So as as you go out now, not, not that we do that anymore with the COVID crisis, but say you were at a networking event, Alma, and somebody would come up to you and you were chatting with them and they said, so what, what do you do? How, how would you answer that question after that varied background? I think the best answer I can give is that I do whatever I'm inspired to do. And I'm really fortunate that at this point in my career, I get to say that, but I don't think it's that different from my work at Gibson Dunn. And of course, going off to create allegory. Uh, When I worked at cases at Gibson Dunn, you know, I really wanted to dive into the cases. I really wanted to learn the stories. I, growing up, I was 
huge into storytelling and uh, you know reading books. And for me at Gibson Dunn, it was about learning the cases. And at Allegory, it was about building this company, you know, having this vision and building it out. And now, you know, I'm still out there learning and then connecting that information with other people. And so I think if I were to break down what I do into three things, it would, and it, it's all premised on this idea of engaging with whatever is in front of me, whether it's learning new technologies, whether it's learning a case, whether it's learning about people that I meet at conferences or um, on Zoom calls now, um, it's all predicated on engaging with the world around me and being inspired by it. And so I would say that what I do is I connect. Um, so I connect people, I connect people with technologies I've heard about, I take what I've learned and I bring it back to wherever I am next. Um, educating. So, you know, right now we're working on at Latera, obviously we're working on building out the litigation side of the business. And a large, large part of my job is educating people on litigation um, aspects relating to allegory, but also outside of allegory and then building. So building on whatever I'm learning, um, you know, obviously with allegory, we are actually building a product now, you know, building more connections, building uh, brand press for Latera, getting out there in the market and talking about them. Um, so yeah, connecting, educating, building. Does that, <laughs> does that tie well, it that, all together? It, it does. So so it, you're inspired to connect, educate, and build. And of course, as a founder uh, at Allegory Law, you had to do all of those things as part of your role. And you've talked a lot about that. You know, if if, if the listener were to run a search for Allegory and a say, A-S-A-Y, <laughs> there's a lot out there that talks about the design. You, you give some great presentations about why you designed Allegory, the problems that you were facing. You know, in, in a lot of ways, the, the Allegory platform really boils down. If he just Discovery is something that you you must do from a compliance standpoint. Allegory is really something that you should do to make yourself more efficient, to manage the facts, to tell your story better, uh, and that that's the way it was it was designed. Alma, in many of your presentations, you talked about the upside down T. Tell our listeners what you meant by the upside down T, and then specifically, do you see that problem any differently in 2020 than you did in 2017 when you sold the company or when you did in 2012 when you when you founded and designed the product? So the upside down T idea came out of uh, immense frustration with people pigeonholding allegory into e-discovery and calling it an e-discovery product, when in reality, it was covering everything that e-discovery didn't in terms of developing the facts and evidence of your case. And so I had to think about how do I convey this to people because people really have their minds in the e-discovery world and, and that's changed a bit, but you know, we're talking 2012-ish, e-discovery still felt new to some people. And so the upside down T idea is that if you think about left to right, that's the course of the case. So the case starts with some kind of investigation, a complaint, talking to witnesses, at some point, you're pulling information out of e-discovery and you're developing your evidence. So that's the line coming down from top to bottom. That's the EDRM. That's the e-discovery process. That's basically feeding into the middle of your actual case. And then, of course, you continue on on the bottom part going left to right um, in using that evidence, uh, showing it to witnesses at deposition, editing testimony. So now you're developing the testimony and the evidence into the case that you're going to present at trial. And then, of course, even beyond trial, you're trying to capture all of that information in some way so that if you need to go back and reference this case um, or, you know, have some sort of knowledge management aspect to your litigation management, that would fall into the far right there. And so as you look at that problem, you know, managing what I always like to call the dispositionally important documents, those things that actually matter to the merits of the case, they become exhibits, they become something that you're referencing to the court. Do you see any difference now in 2020 in terms of the technology landscape or the need for a tool like Allegory to do what it was originally designed to do in terms of managing those, those important docs and testimony? I think it's what it, what I've been saying for the last eight years, which is it becomes more and more impor important every year because the volume of electronic information just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so back in 2012, even, you might have had cases that you're litigating from a few years before that might not have even had an overwhelming amount of information. Um, but now we're tw in 2020. 
So the case is, even if the case is like old and stale, it's coming out of, it may be coming out of 2010, 2015, um, where, where there's just a plethora of electronic information and it's way too much. Um, it's way too much of the discovery level and that's why you have all these tools and processes to whittle it down to the responsive documents. But now, even when you whittle the responsive documents into the important documents, the cases that you're actually gonna present at trial or the cases that you wanna show to witnesses or just need to be aware of to understand the story, I mean, we're talking way too many documents for the key members of the team to get their arms around um, and understand. And so you have to have some kind of technology. I think it becomes more and more important every day. And the change that I've seen is that law firms started to recognize that. So when we started, it was kind of a greenfield play. You know, some people use case map but, um, or case notebook, but very, very different tools. And most people were using Word and Excel. Um, and so really we were fighting with the notion of, do we even need a tool to do this? Now, I think there's been a realization that you need tools like this. For example, you know, I, I just came back from leave and Lotera's acquired allegory. Um, so I'm gonna use this my frame of reference when I was at Integrion a year ago, um, because I'm just kind of refamiliarizing myself with the allegory world now. But the change that we really saw between when we sold or around when we sold to Integrion um, to when I left is that rather than going bottom up and selling to case teams and trying to get one case team to say yes and then another case team to say yes, um, we were suddenly realizing that big law firms were coming to us and they were coming to us with RFPs, which was great because they were specifying all the features they were looking for. Not that they expected one tool to have them all, but they wanted to know if you had them. So suddenly they were telling us what was important to them and what were the needs that they realized they had. And one of those RFPs that dates back to pre-acquisition and that traces back to a paralegal we had worked with when she was at a different firm using Allegory. My understanding is that recently we signed that big law firm and we'll be launching throughout that firm soon. So the world has really changed even just in that one example from one paralegal loving the tool and bringing it onto her cases at one firm to years later, when she's at a different firm running things and says, okay, here, we need this tool. The firm supports me. And this is a firm that had no interest in allegory back in the day. And we know what we need. We want this to be a success. So at the beginning, it's, it's selling somebody that they have the need. And now kind of towards the end of that life cycle, it's, it's selling the solution for a need that they know they have. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So Alma, I, I want to ask you about this November 2017 interview that you gave to NYU Law School, which would have been right about the same time that you sold Allegory to Integrion. And in that interview, you covered really a lot of the issues that you went through being a woman entrepreneur, entrepreneur going into legal tech specifically. And you talked through a lot of the challenges, and I would encourage all of our listeners uh, to look that up and listen to it because it was a really good explanation of, of what you faced along the way. In that interview, you noted several different times that you tended to be a realist when you were describing to people the challenges of being a startup founder and what that was like and the things that you had to go through. And you noted that it's not, uh, it's not all rainbows and excitement, I think, were your, were your words. Now you're on the other side of, of allegory. You've had several years now to reflect on that experience. If you were able to go back in time to 2012 and you have this, you know, this associate at Gibson Dunn that has this choice in front of her and you could tell her anything that would help to smooth the way, maybe smooth the edges off that entrepreneur experience. What advice would you get, would you give yourself about entering into legal tech and being an entrepreneur? Build a network. As lawyers, I think a lot of us tend to be introverted, and I definitely am an introvert by nature. Obviously, through my experiences the past few years, I've had to learn how to be more extroverted. But as a lawyer, you really kind of work heads down for the most part. You know your clients, you know opposing counsel, but you're not necessarily putting in the effort to get to know lots of people. Um, and that's something I had to learn and was critical to my success at Allegory and continues to be critical uh, for my career. And there are two areas where I would focus that. One is getting to know the people that will be the buyers. 
So when I was at Gibson, even though the knowledge management and innovation roles have really blown up over the past few years, somebody was buying technology at the time. And I wish I had gotten to know who those people were and how those decisions were being made when I still had that Gibson Dunn credibility and you know anybody at the firm would answer my call. Um, because once you leave, that's not the case and it's a hard lesson to learn. And then also just connecting with people, period. You know, I, I wish when, you know, we were representing clients that I got to know more of the people beyond the people who were in the meetings every day with us and just taking every opportunity to get to know anybody who was touching the work that I was doing, because you just never know um, how those people are going to come around later and how you may be able to help them, how they may be able to help you or how they may be able to help or be helped by someone else that you meet. And that's an incredibly um, wonderful feeling to meet someone and be like, oh man, you know who you should meet? You should meet this person. And it's a great way to build trust and community with the people in your network. So I'm in 2017, you sell allegory to Integrion. And I, I will say being you know in the market at the time and knowing uh, all about the company, it was kind of a surprise to, to those of us watching from the outside. And I can imagine that it must have been a difficult decision for you overall, given the personal investment that you made in the company, which, as I said, is is very well well reported on. What were the biggest drivers of a decision like that for you? Was it, was it an event? Was it a series of events? Like what happened to make you make that bold move at that point in 2017? I had kind of tumbled into entrepreneurship. I didn't know. And, you know, this goes back to the last question of, I should have gotten to know people who are entrepreneurs and gotten to better understand what startup founders go through before I became one myself. Um, so I, I had thought, oh, let's go build this product that obviously everyone needs. I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. I didn't really under, know the startup world. Um, and I just kind of fell into it. And once you're a startup founder, you know, there's no, there's no going back really, um, on unwinding yourself from that means unwinding a company often or all sorts of other complicated options. It's not like you can just peace out for a while and decide whether you want to come back. So, you know, here I was five years later and I, I just really had to think, you know, is this what I want to be doing for the next five, 10 years? Because this is, you know, building a startup and then, you know, either selling it or bringing in a new CEO. It's, it's not a fast process. And I had come to realize that by then, obviously. So the opportunity arose and I just thought I was ready to, Feel like I had choices again and put my life first. Um, and I was pretty open about that with people at the time that I, I think as a startup founder, if you don't 1000% have your heart in it, then if the right opportunity arises, it makes sense. Or at least it made sense for me. You know, could we have kept going? Absolutely. I was confident in where we were going. Things were in the upswing. We had just signed a huge corporate client. Um, we were getting our, all these RFPs from big law firms. The market was changing in a positive direction. I think a lot of people would have stayed, but for me personally, it, it was time to move on. During several of the interviews while you were at Allegory, you noted this tendency of big law and my antenna went up because you came out of big law. So this was this was something that you were familiar with, that you had you know, in-house experience with, if you will. And you noted that there was a tendency of big law consumers when you would come in and present Allegory as a technical solution to this case management, fact management problem, that the first question they'd ask you is, what other big law firms are, are using it? And, and I, you, you kind of said exasperatingly during your uh, presentation, <laughs> well, if not you, then who will use it. And I took from your comments a general view that you felt a herd mentality within big law to stick within the safety of the herd of what's been accepted and proven uh, by other big law uh, participants, uh, which again, is it was fascinating to me for somebody who came out of big law and had that, that, that experience. From your vantage point now, what's your take on big law adoption of technology? Have you seen any change in favor of faster or slower? or even adoption as you as you talk to big law firms uh, in the present day? First, I'll touch on the point of me coming out of big law. Circle back to my earlier answer where I said, you should get to know the people who are buying technology and how they make their decisions before you go build a startup, because I didn't know any of that. 
I should have, but I didn't, I, I didn't know that there was such a herd mentality about buying technology. I thought if you show someone technology that fixes a problem, they'll buy it. Right. So I think, I think well, things are both harder and easier. I think they're easier in the sense that there have been a lot of startups that have come out and found their footing within big law. And so there's kind of this precedent, if not for a particular technology, for the idea that it's okay to work with a startup. Um, so you look at tools like Kira and Case Text, and you know, I was friends with Noah and Jake when they were just starting out. I was starting Allegory around the same time. And now, you know, Case Text and Kira are pretty well-known adopted tools within big law firms. And there are many other examples as well. And so, and also the increase in knowledge management and innovation professionals, I think is huge. Because now there are people, it's, it's not IT, it's not looking at technology strictly from a technology, like the bolts of it and looking at whether it's needed, but not really understanding the practice of law. You have now these people in innovation and knowledge management who make it their business to understand how lawyers practice, not just to understand the nuts and bolts of a particular technology, to understand those needs in a way that firms didn't before, you know, to ask their associates the right questions and not just assume that because no one's spoken up that something isn't needed. And so in that sense, things are easier. You know, I love when we, when we would go into a firm and there would be a knowledge management or innovation professional on our side within the firm, because that just changes the whole ballgame. On the other hand, you know, when we were starting out with Allegory, we could sell into one case. If I could find one partner who believed in the tool and would tell his team to use it, then I could, I could get a contract in front of them. I could get it signed and we could be up and running there wasn't as much oversight across the firm, or at least not as much partnership respect for oversight when it came to technology decisions. Whereas now it's much more centralized that a lot of the firms, even the partners know they can't just sign a contract on behalf of the firm to use a tool. Now you have to get, you know, whoever's in charge of that decision at the firm to sign off. Often it's a much more rigorous process, which is good, but it does make things take longer and can be harder at times. And just, just for our listeners who may not be familiar, Kira is K-I-R-A and is the mergers and acquisition diligence accelerator. So to find consistent contract clauses, say, for instance, within NDAs and case text is a research tool that you upload a brief and it will instantly pop out contra authority, uh, other other uh, ancillary authority that may flesh out arguments that were in that brief. So, it, so a new way of looking at research and using work product that already exists. Did I remember those correctly? Correctly. <laughs> yeah, those are good summaries. All right. So looking forward, Alma, you know, it's, it's interesting you talked in that answer about the centralization of the purchasing within law firms and that need to convince these professionals that are dedicated to the practice of, of law and solving problems versus just a, a tech issue. Looking forward, what do you see as uh, in your role as the biggest driver to get lawyers generally over these early adopter fears and friction? What, what do you see as being the impetus for change around that early adoption cycle? I think less focus on technology and more focus on adoption and change management. Um, I think that there was a sense for a long time that you build a great technology and you and people will use it, but that's not really the case. You can build the best technology in the world, but if you don't have a means for getting lawyers' attention, they're never going to go in and try it. And I think a lot of us are guilty of that even in our everyday lives. I mean, I, I'm not very good at updating my phone, you know? <laughs> it's like everything feels like, oh, this extra step, even though in the long run it's the right decision and will make things run more smoothly. But I also think there was a, a big focus on technology and get everybody into the cloud and don't be scared of the cloud. But legal technology is, you know, so much more than that. And it's one of the things I've realized working at Latera because their products traditionally have been desktop-based, keyed into Microsoft Office, and they have some really brilliant technologies that help lawyers work right in those tools. And you now see companies, um, I think Luminance, which is another contract review tool. I know Case Text recently. You now see these other companies building plugins back into Word. And it's fascinating to me because we've spent all this time trying to get people into the cloud. And now the cloud tools are actually linking back into Word and the tools that are already in front of lawyers because we're realizing that there's more of a need to go where the lawyers are versus just trying to pull them into the cloud and get them to do everything in the cloud. And I think that's part of that um, adoption change management focus that we've got we've to 
nudge them along. We can't just expect them to, you know, jump in with us. And then I think the other piece, and I'll, I'll, I think this is the third time I've said it, but, you know, having more knowledge management and innovation, innovation professionals, because they really can be the people inside helping with the change management piece and knocking on attorney's doors and saying, you know, do you have any issues? Can you please give me feedback in a way that an outside service provider can't? And so I think on every project, if we had a Nikki at Paul Hastings or an O's at Simpson or a Vishal at Hinshaw, the projects would be so much more successful. And I'm encouraged seeing more and more firms bring in people like that to help with that change management piece. Um, but I don't think technology alone is going to fix it. So the, the internal evangelist educator role to make sure that it meets the lawyers where they are and the lawyers can access it when they need it. Yep. And, and to pass feedback back to the service provider, because all we want to do as service providers is provide tools that actually help lawyers. We're not trying to build tools just to build tools, um, but often lawyers are too busy to give us feedback. And so, you know, and we, and we come across as pushy if we try too hard, but having, having someone to bridge that gap and really pull the feedback out of attorneys results in better technology. So Alma, you took a little bit of time off from your time at Integrion at the end of August 2019 to March of 2020, and then you come back just full throttle into Latera. And when you came back, you said the following, which I thought was a really good summary of, of what you, it seemed like were your reasons for Latera. You said, quote, now more than ever, we need companies leading the way that respect and empower clients and employees alike. I look forward to working across the legal industry in my new evangelist role to help bring innovative ways of thinking and practice to life, end quote. I have to think that given your background in big law, your founder experience, your CIO, chief innovation officer experience, that you had a lot of different options coming back in. What was it about Latera in particular that made it the right fit for you? And can you unpack a little bit your your comment about Latera's respect and empowerment of clients and employees? Absolutely. Um, so I, I intentionally took that time off I was very fortunate to, as you say, uh, have many opportunities coming out of it. And you know, some people had invited me to come work with them right as I was leaving Integrion. And I, I needed to make an affirmative decision to take time off and realize what was important to me, what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. I had kind of fallen into every step of my career until then. So for the first time, I wanted to take a break and really think it all through and make, make a really conscious decision about what I did next. And in terms of working, you know, and I thought about going different routes, but when I thought about going to work for a service provider in the legal technology world, two things were really important to me. One was a company that was financially stable. Obviously working at a startup, you're, you're often, you know, going month to month or even week to week and watching the numbers very closely. And I didn't, and even working at some other big companies, there's so much pressure and, you know, they, they're owned by often owned by private equity. It's putting a lot of pressure on the numbers. And so you can work at a company that doesn't, while it's big, doesn't feel financially stable and there's just panic around numbers. I didn't want any of that. And then also culture. Um, so it, it's the point about caring not only about your customers and when I mean like genuinely caring about them, not just trying to get them to sign on the dotted line, but also caring about your employees because, you know, as many articles are written about how, you know, if you tr treat your employees well, then the customers will see that and you'll get better business. A lot of companies don't follow that. And so those were the two things that were front and center for me. And when I, you know, I was fortunate to know Haley Altman, who was the founder of Doxley and had been working at Latera a few months following the acquisition of Doxley. So, you know, she kept telling me how great they were. And, you know, I had a little bit of inside track there, but then I met with the CEO Avanish in January and, you know, he was talking, I, I touched on those two points. I mean, those were my big items. And I came around to believing that they hit the mark on those two and decided to go with Latera. And I'm glad I did for many reasons, including the fact that I started on March 17th. And I think a week later, they put a hiring, they and everybody else put a hiring freeze in place. But there has been no better circumstance to see if a company is true to its word on those two things than this pandemic. Latera didn't panic. If anything, it became more generous financially. Uh, they set up a $350,000 
fund for employees who were personally affected by the pandemic, who's, for example, whose spouse lost a job or who weren't going to be able to make, make their targets because their clients weren't purchasing anything right now. They were financially generous in other ways. You know, they, they recognized, um, especially early on, that most companies probably weren't going to hit numbers this year. We're very realistic about everything and never was there any hint of panic. And then on the culture side, they really supported the employees. They recognized when people had been working hard and that things were tough under the circumstance, you know, tougher than they needed to be under the circumstances. Um, they, they started giving us, you know, random days off saying, you know, everybody needs time to themselves. They didn't charge anyone's PTO for just needing some mental health time or time to spend with your family, just all the way along, you know, they've really put us front and center and been very candid about what the company is doing, why it's doing different things, the decisions that they're making. And it, it's, it's been wonderful. And, you know, as, as someone who joined the company while pregnant, um, you know, and wondering what it would mean to, you know, suddenly be having a baby a couple months later in the middle of this pandemic, working at a new company, it was very encouraging that on every Zoom call, you know, there were, there were pets, there were kids, um, you know, my boss has his son on his lap during a lot of our calls uh, because of this whole experience. And so, you, and, and that was, that was not only accepted, it was encouraged, you know, people were glad to get a peek into people's personal lives. And it's just been easy to see how Latera cares about its employees. And that absolutely then translates into how it cares about its customers. Um, they've put a real focus on adoption. They brought in a whole new adoption team at the end of last year, a couple months before I started, um, to really make sure that we were going in and meeting clients where they were and giving them the resources they needed and not just throwing technology at them. So while they're they're doing all of these efforts to support the employees to you know support you through through uh, your new addition in August of 2020, they actually go through a purchase of allegory from Integrion. So I, I want to know a little bit about that hap happening. It, it, to me, it was, it, was, it was remarkable to see allegory reunited with you, but maybe even more so Corey Barnes being reunited with you because, you know, if you had any experience with, with allegory for the past six or seven years, Corey was probably part of that experience. He's been a, a, a feature, uh, you know, person that's been there in the trenches with allegory uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole time period. So as you, as you look forward, Alma, what's the vision for allegory at Latera, uh, what are you most keyed on and what are you most excited about? Well, obviously I'm most excited about Corey working with me again. So even before Allegory, Corey, Corey was uh, my right-hand paralegal at Gibson Dunn. And I told uh, the partner before I left that I was coming for him. Um, and he was indeed my first non-tech hire at Allegory. The acquisition of Allegory by Latera is really funny because it's not because of me. You know, I'm sure people would think like, oh, Alma went over there and then they acquired Allegory because of Alma. And it's, it's not. Um, it was a separate business decision made at Latera. And of course, they consulted me because, you know, I know about I know all the details and I know the history and I know a lot about Allegory. But as a as a business decision, it made sense. And so that's what they did. So I think, like I mentioned earlier, I'm just back from leave. This happened while I was gone. I, I knew the thoughts going into it. Um, but. I myself find myself in the strange position of not having seen Allegory in over a year and not uh, knowing quite yet anything that's happening with it at Latera. And even today, you know, I'll stay as an evangelist and I'll, of course, advise, um, but it's not like I'm being moved over to run Allegory again. One of my greatest pleasures coming out of Allegory has been watching Corey sort of rise to every challenge along the way. And of course he was running Allegory when I left in August of last year. And so now he's the expert, but I do know that there's gonna continue to be a big focus on integrations and seamlessly getting information into the system because those have always been hurdles that we have this incredible tool that does so many things, but we realized along the way and it continues to be a challenge that you have to integrate with everything else. You have to make the process of getting, getting information in seamless because it's just, it's too much to ask people to get an, get a system up to speed before they really see the value of it. Um, so anything we can do technologically to make that faster and easier, we want to be doing. 
I also know that they launched permissions. Uh, so that's pretty exciting because that's something that for years clients wanted is the ability to set controls on certain documents or pieces of information. So that's already live in Allegory. And from there, uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, it's a pretty new thing and we'll see how Latera puts its stamp on it. In researching for today, it, it appears that Latera is more a transactionally focused company in some ways in terms of the transaction, you know, the transactional legal support, and that you were one of the first notable hires that Latera had that had that deeper litigation focus. And, and as you come into Latera, I'm sure that you focused on other litigation tasks, for instance, research or drafting and, and things of, the, of that nature that are outside the, the case management or even the e-discovery context. As you look forward to the future, maybe not even for Latera, just in general, what is it that you see as the future of litigation specifically with with the way that legal tech is going to change the way that litigators do their jobs? Are, are e-discovery and allegory and drafting tools and research tools all going to be done through one single pane of glass that's super easy and supports workflows? What, what, do, you, what do you see as that, as that future, Alma? Well, let's take e-discovery out of it. So e-discovery is like a whole different ballgame, I think. Um, yes, it's litigation related but there's a lot more that goes into it. And so I, I sort of look at e-discovery as a separate industry that supports and feeds into litigation. But in terms of litigation, I, I think that is the vision is to have, you know, is to bridge that gap between cloud and desktop. So talking about plugins from the cloud back into Microsoft Office where attorneys are, but then going back out to the cloud when you need to collaborate and do other things that are more suited to cloud-based tools um, and absolutely having one space to do all of this. And I think that is part of Latera's mission to make it easier for clients um, instead of having to kind of piece together all these solutions to create one space provided by one service provider with one interface where everything is interconnected. And I think while I wasn't brought on related to Allegory, I absolutely was brought on to help bring their litigation side up to speed with their transactional side. Even before the acquisition of Allegory, I've been working with the product team and setting up user interviews and working with them um, on the tool that already existed called Litigation Companion which is a drafting tool that plugs into Word to help lawyers. And they recently added an integration into another research provider so that you can site check your brief right from Word. You're not having to go into a separate tool each time. You can link to your cases right from the document. And so they really have had this focus on litigation. And so acquiring Allegory was just a natural extension of what they are doing with Workshare and Doxly to create a transactional workspace well, they also want to create the litigation workspace. And so they're just moving fast to cover all of it. So again, meeting meeting the lawyers with the technology where they're at and where they're doing their work so the technology just becomes a seamless integrated point within their day versus something they have to go seek out when they have an individual task to do. Absolutely. So, so Alma, in preparing for today, there, there are certain gifts to a podcaster, and, and you gave me one of those gifts without knowing it back in May of 2016. <laughs> so you were, you were a mock judge in a mock court proceeding that was literally putting on trial May of 2020. Uh, and, and the trial was the plaintiffs were, were suing the legal tech industry, claiming that the legal tech industry industry of 2020, so the legal tech industry of today, but this is you judging it back in 2016, had overpromised and underdelivered specifically as to increasing access to justice and disrupting the practice of law. And so you, you sat as a judge, this was a summary judgment argument, and you asked some, some very pointed and good questions. I, I noted that, uh, that you would have been a, a, a very good judge. Um, Thank you. So, so while, while the plaintiffs were claiming that the legal tech industry had overpromised and underdelivered. The defendants were claiming that the things had actually improved rather dramatically, as a matter of fact, and that uh, that people were forgetting in the pace of change just how far we've really come with technology. So, as we sit here, I'm going to put you back into your judge seat and ask you: Has 2020 delivered on those promises of disruption and improving access to justice? And and why do you why do you say that? Yes or no? 
we certainly haven't delivered on all of the promises. There's always more we can be doing better, but I would say that there has been a lot of change. Um, I mean, when I think back to 2016, it does feel like a whole different world, Um, not only personally, but also in terms of, you know, the pace of change, the awareness of change, the ability to bring change into law firms and other legal areas. Um, If you look at a company, like theory and principle run by Nicole Braddock, you know, they're building some really incredible tools. I know that they're launching one now, um, helping people understand their ballots. Um, and there are more and more companies that are focused on creating tools that expand access to justice. We also, you know, have companies like Paladin that's really taken off in partnering with big law firms to help them facilitate pro bono projects. Um, so that big law can help conquer the access to justice gap because, you know, of course, people may say they want to do it, but it, again, if you don't make it easy for them, you know, they get caught up in other things that they're doing. And so I think that there's a lot of great technology out there that's taken off in the past few years that does move us closer to fully fulfilling those promises. But I don't think we'll ever fully get there because I think every problem, 10 more problems arise. And we certainly all need to be doing better on the access to justice front. And I I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with money. And I've been encouraged to see the success of Paladin because it is a company that has been able to raise a lot of money, but is more focused on access to justice than pro bono. Um, And I'd love to see more examples like that out there. Speaking of pro bono and access to justice, in July of 2020, you did an interview of Tiffany Graves, who was pro bono counsel at Bradley Aaron, specifically talking about access to justice, the way that lawyers can improve their pro bono activities is a really good program. And it was on what was called Latera TV. Tell me a little bit about Latera TV and what you uh, as a company are trying to accomplish with that with that particular medium. Tiffany Graves was my last uh, interview before I went on leave, and it was such an awesome way to go out because she is just phenomenal. But Latera TV was born out of the pandemic. So I joined Latera, and very shortly thereafter, they started talking about doing this thing called Latera TV, and suddenly my changed somewhat. Uh, I didn't know that I'd be live programming and (laughs) setting up interviews um, on a weekly basis. Um, But it's been a lot of fun because we saw that the pandemic was going to mean that there weren't as many conferences. There might not be as much live content out there. Of course, now everybody's doing virtual content. But if you think back to March and April, people were just trying to figure out, you know, okay, what's the world going to be? How do we stay connected with our industry? And, and with with people who we think are smart and have something to share. And so they launched Latera TV and they thought, we'll just do it for a month or two until, you know, things start to get back to normal um, or maybe it won't be that, that successful. And it's been a huge hit. They now have some of the, you know, leading voices in the legal industry hosting programs. Um, so you have like Ari Kaplan and Bob Ambrosi hosting episodes every week as well as a bunch of new people that they recently announced and they've reformatted things to be a little bit more Netflix-like so you can go back and watch old episodes and created a a firmer schedule. So my evangelist team hosts a series called The Changing Normal every day, um, Tuesday through Thursday, every week. And we have a lot of freedom to decide who we want to bring on you know, what we think is relevant. There was a lot of programming around ILTA, for example, that my colleague Sherry Kappel did. I did some series in July before I left. So I did a three-part series on legal legal incubators and accelerators, and then a four-part series on access to justice. And it's just, it's great because we get to think about topics that might be of interest to our colleagues out there and reach out to people that we think are interesting and have views that should be shared and put them out there. Alma, if you were sitting down with general counsel and discussing their litigation portfolio and they were to look at you and say, Alma, it's overwhelming how many litigation technologies there actually are out there. Everything that we've talked about during this program from e-discovery to drafting to research to uh, even 
case citation checkers. As I evaluate my outside counsel, if I wanted to get a sense of where they really were on the technology adoption spectrum in terms of their maturity and looking for specifically those technologies that mostly inure to a client benefit through better efficiencies, more value uh, brought by them, what should I focus on and what questions should I ask my outside counsel as I evaluate their readiness to use technology to my benefit? What would, what would be your answer to, to that in-house counsel dealing with that problem? I think the answer depends on the level of effort they want to put into it. Um, if they want to put some effort into it and to the right answer, I think looking at the amount of time build for different tasks from one firm to the other, and then going and asking the people at different firms, you know, what technologies did you use on my case? What technology did you use for drafting? What technology did you use for research? And then compare, you know, the technologies they're using to the time it's taking the people on the cases to do that work. And when I say ask, I mean like ask the associates. Don't ask the partners um, or, you know, the, the higher ups what they should be using. Ask the associates what they actually used because sometimes firms buy technology and then the attorneys don't actually use it. But I think at a, you can also do this at a higher level. You can go and ask the firms what technology they're using, but then take it a step further and say, you know, oh, how have you found that to make you better able to deliver services on our cases? Because firms will be open about it. I interviewed a firm to represent us at Allegory for our corporate matters, and I asked them what technologies they were using. And, you know, we were using Carta to manage our shareholder documents and uh, issuances and you know, they, I brought that up and they said, oh yeah, we'll use that um, if you want us to, but we're still gonna use the same spreadsheet we've been using for decades. They'll, they'll be honest. It's the funny thing about lawyers is often they'll be candid if you just ask them. Um, and this was one of like the most renowned big law firms in the startup representation space. And I was just kind of blown away. And so I think it's just important to ask if nothing else. So I, I have a lightning round of questions here, Alma, of, of three standard questions. And then the first one is, who is a business leader that you admire and what particular qualities about them do you admire? So I'm kind of going to cheat on this. I wouldn't normally do this, but it's true. Uh, Avanish, the CEO of Latera. Um, and I have to say that because just the way that he's led the company through the pandemic, and all of those things I talked about before, you know, yes, those decisions are being made across the executive team and in consultation with HG, which is a private equity company. But at the end of the day, it's the CEO who is setting the path and communicating with all of us um, on a weekly basis about what's happening. And he's he's not only from a business perspective, but from his perspective as a father and how that's interfered at times with you know, his ability to do his job. And so therefore how he can relate to the employees and understanding what it is that we need and making sure that he's getting feedback from all of the employees to set the tone for the decisions that the company is making. It's just, you know, there are a lot of people out there that I admire, but I think most impactful this year for me has been Avanish and his leadership. So the second one is, what's the last podcast that you listen to, even if it's a guilty pleasure? And I'm, I'm going to add on a caveat to this. If, if you're not a podcast enthusiast, which I have a feeling, Alma, that you're not, what's your content stream of choice? Where do you get your, your news, entertainment, information? So I, I don't really listen to podcasts, which feels a bit hypocritical because I do a lot of podcasts. And I, I listen to them once in a while, but there's not like a channel or I don't even know what you really call it, <laughs> um, uh, that I particularly uh, make a point to listen to. Um, when we're driving long distance, I do listen to Criminal because my husband listens to it when it's his turn to drive. And that one's pretty fascinating. Um, but I've always been more of a visual person, someone who likes to read. I, I don't have as much ease paying attention if it's uh, something I'm listening to. And so... I'd say day-to-day -day Twitter, which may sound ridiculous, but it kind of gives me information from all spectrums that I care about. Um, if, you know, if there's a television show that I'm, you know, in finale and I want to see what everybody's saying about it, it's on Twitter. If 
if there's an earthquake in LA, it's all on Twitter. If, you know, that are happening in legal tech, it's on Twitter. But, you know, there's just so much information on there and it is more personal because you get people's opinions and perspectives on things. And then if you want to dig deeper, you can click the article or, you know, go watch a program. But I think day to day, that's the content stream in terms of taking in information. Um, when I just want to chill out, it's television. <laughs> so what's the last book you read, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to our listeners since you just couldn't put it down? So I love Orson Scott Card. I I fell in love with his writing when I read Ender's Game in high school, and it was a signed reading. But I loved the book, and I started reading everything he had written. And so I was most recently, and now I can't remember the t- exact title, but um, there's a prequel series to Ender's Game, and um, I so I was reading the most recent one was the second one of that series. Um, and it, it, I, I love going back to his books because I read a lot of nonfiction. I don't read a ton of fiction these days. I more get my fiction through television, but it, it takes me to being a kid and, you know, really getting into a book and not being able to put it down and bringing it to dinner and putting it in front of you because you just can't, you know, you don't need that same time as you do with nonfiction where you set it down and need time to process and come back to it. Um, you really do just speed along. So if you haven't read anything by Orson Scott Card, I really would recommend anything. Well, Alma, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always great to see you. And uh, I think this has been a, a very informative session and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Clinton. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on it. Thanks for joining us on the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast, Season 1, Sitting with the C-Suite. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can also visit us online at www.leandiscoveryblog.com, where we have additional content and videos of the interviews. Lean Discovery Applied is hosted by Clinton Sanko, eDiscovery Officer of Baker Donaldson. This program is not intended as an endorsement and does not constitute legal advice. Thanks to Baker Donaldson, a leader in innovative legal services, for supporting this podcast. To the guests and to you, the listener. See you next time.